Hello and welcome to the Global Cosmetics News Podcast. Today we'll be talking about the only subject anyone's talking about right now, and that is, of course, the COVID-19 outbreak and how the beauty industry is navigating the strategy changes required. But first, it's my pleasure to introduce our panellists who, due to the lockdown, are all joining us by phone. We have Joanne Bell, Brand Insight and Content Director at Three the Birds, Nicole Fool, Head of Trends and Asian Consumer Intelligence, and Cherie Bouziak, CEO and founder of Beauty Edge. Welcome, everybody. Hello, good Hello. morning. Let's start by talking about cash flow. How are companies tidying themselves over during this period? Um, we've seen some take government loans, there's been pay cuts, cancelled dividends, etc. so far. Um, Joanne, would you like to start us off? Well, I mean, I'll start this off by saying I'm no banking um, expert, but I think it's really fair to say it's a completely mixed bag, depending. It's not even just about business size. Um, It seems to be very much about cash flow and cash in the bank and also the ability of beauty businesses to access financing. So what it's quite interesting to see how some smaller indie brands who've had perhaps recent VC funding are actually kind of relaxed around this time, whereas even bigger companies and not even just distressed um, companies are really, really struggling in terms of accessing cash. So, there, you know, there's no one size fits all. But uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say when you look at something like um, LMVH, you know, it's a really mixed story even within that. So on the one hand, we know that they're planning to cut their capital expenditure by, you know, 30%, 35% this year, uh, delaying store openings. And we know they've laid off people at Sephora in the US, etc. But at the same time, they're going ahead with reworking the Samaritan department store in Paris. Um, you know, it's a shopping hub and luxury hotel. So, you know, even within any um, big beauty uh, and design business, there's, there's a different story. And when you look at something like Lauder, well, they, you know, they've uh, apparently have taken a 1.3 billion of its 1.5 billion revolving credit facility. So, and that's to get flexibility and liquidity in its cash position. So, you know, not many brands have a similar muscle. Um, and also something that I'm finding really, really interesting is where businesses that have a lot of existing debt are actually effectively being acquired um, into equity control because of debt refinancing. So I found it very interesting that Neiman Marcus, obviously, you know, the very high-end designer, beauty um, store, um, is now going to be owned by its former lenders. So it's really, really, really interesting to see that, you know, it isn't about size, potentially. It's not simply about complexity. It's not, um, you know, there are many, many different ways that finance is being accessed and the implications for business investment. Nicole? The three largest beauty manufacturers in Asia are Shiseido, Amore Pacific and Cow. And Japan's Shiseido just announced its earnings report and it saw a net profit fall by 95.8% in Q1. And uh, this is obviously a fairly gloomy outlook for the next few years, it states. And obviously, with a recession coming up, it really believes that there won't be a full recovery until 2023. To sort of take steps in the right direction, it's said that it's going to become a very cash flow oriented business and postpone non-essential investments. That said... Japanese companies on the whole tend to be more cash heavy than a lot of their international counterparts. So it's it's bad, but it it might be okay. I mean, the next one on the list is uh, a more Pacific that's had, you know, a bad earnings report as well this year. But 
there are some sort of bright spots happening in China and in Korea itself, which is sort of back to normal. And Cow has been somewhat cushioned because it has its extensive home care business. So strangely, the country that is always seen as uh, the sort of low growth, slow growth, stagnation capital of the world, its very safe policy of having, you know, extensive cash resources might actually see it through this. Interesting. And Cherie? I would agree that it is a mixed bag depending on the financial shape of the company and the size of the company and where they were standing before it had all started. One of the things that's very obvious is that this pandemic has just filtered up so many things to the top that probably were brewing anyway and just made it happen a lot quicker. Um, I would say some of the things in agreement with the the other panelists uh, of what I'm seeing are larger corporations where they are furloughing uh, employees, even upper management, taking reduced wages for this, you know, for the short term um, to try to maintain fewer layoffs for smaller brands bringing PR in-house as opposed to hiring out or hiring smaller PR agencies so that they can afford them. Um, to stay current, to stay active. Some companies going Chapter 11 bankruptcy in efforts to significantly reduce their debt and interest payments. And um, it looks to appear demographically how each state here apparently looks like it's opening up at a different time frame. It's not across the board. So depending on where that distribution is of the of the company is um, helping them to make their decisions as well but for sure everyone even on a personal level we're all trying to maintain maintain where our cash is and and create strategies to hold on to our cash in the best way that we can sure let's talk about layoffs um as countries reopen obviously a vast swathe of Asia has reopened already or remained open even and states in the US are reopening and some parts of Europe too. Should we expect to see permanent closures, widespread redundancies and and where do you think the losses to headcounts will be concentrated? Is it is it retail, is it manufacturing, head office roles or, or all of them? Um, let's start with Nicole. Mm. So in Japan, the very first listed company to uh, enter bankruptcy proceedings was actually a, a century-old um, fashion apparel maker, Renown to much fanfare because this obviously doesn't happen that much in Japan due to obviously department stores and retailers having their doors closed. uh, The company's kind of seen its revenue basically cut off. Um, That's probably the biggest casualty so far. In terms of, you know, fashion brands, it's, you know, it's a who's who when we look at the US. But so far in Asia, it's mainly unaffected. But I have to say in food service and hospitality, it's wholesale slaughter. I mean, it's just names going under left, right and centre from, you know, emergent cool brands through to, you know, uh, bigger chains. You know, I just see really big, well-known hotels, even in Malaysia, going under. And right now in Singapore, there's almost an unofficial moratorium on redundancies. But once businesses are allowed to open there in June, um, I expect the carnage to begin there across a lot of sectors. Cherie? I I would say there there will be losses. It's a hard question to answer at the time. Every day we're reading 
where there's a company that has shut down permanently, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we know all of their plans right now. So if there's a rebirth later or they're just in the background pulling things together, trying to figure out how to move forward, because we we still are, especially, and I have to go back to our situation where there are different demographics that are more shut down than others, it's hard to offer a broad stroke response to the U.S. in general. We've seen a number of companies just uh, in surprise uh, shut down. I don't have the list in front of me, but I think it's an easy search to, to see that happen. But at the same time, there's also hope and that wait to be able to open up again and strategies that have been put into place to try to service the customer the best that they can for for right now, whether that's digitally or other options of reaching out. One of the things that I, as, as we were preparing for this is even companies say like Lauder who meet their consumer at, in store have figured out ways to go online and teach lessons and even do a new launch on facial color product of blush and have that availability to, to maneuver in that way. So it's too soon to say what this whole fallout will be, but definitely there will be some sad cases out there. And Joanne? Yeah, I can only echo what Nicole and Cherie have said. And I, I think probably the best way I can sum it up is to really just sum up Shiseido's position. So, you know, it's recently announced its business strategies, looking ahead to best and worst case scenarios. The best case is that a vaccination is easily found, you know, everywhere starts reopening up. Um, um, and that's obviously picking up for the beginning of 2021. But the latter, um, uh, the worst case scenario, they're, they're looking with recession until 2020. And it said if it was going to be that um, case, they would be focusing on heavy restructuring and cost reduction, which, as we know, um, apart from any capex, is going to mean uh, job losses. And and for them, I would imagine it really is across the board in terms of efficiencies. But I, I think, you know, in the short term, I, I, you know, echoing what we said before, this this is very much uncovering some of the, the inherent frailties in our existing retail store um, portfolio, should we say, definitely here in the UK and I know in America, where, you know, stores have become, you know, boxes for product rather than deeply experiential. And, you know, without that, you know, they, they were already teetering or most of the names that have quickly gone under in the UK are those which we already knew were, were precarious. So I think that, you know, there will be redundancies across the board, depending on how deep that slowdown, perhaps even into depression goes. But I think that this is probably something that was going to happen in any case, in many ways. Talking about permanent changes or certainly long-term changes, I mean, we've now, I think it's fair to say across the world, had approximately three months, two and a half months of lockdown wherever you've been, even if it's been lifted. And some of the changes that we've made might become permanent and one of which might be business travel and events. We touched on this last time we spoke, but we've since seen fashion weeks in Shanghai and Tokyo, for example, transformed into live streams. Cosmoprof in our industry has cancelled completely now in favour of an online meeting. Do you think virtual is the new reality of business travel and events? Do you think it will ever go back to normal? Let's start with Cherie. 
it's kind of interesting, this whole transition that we've done online. And I have to say, one event that I'm involved in is in cosmetics in North America. And, and I just noticed that they launched in cosmetics. I'm pretty sure it's global. And so it's May 27th to May 28th. They're doing live demos in 30-minute segments. So some of the topics are anti-aging technology, uh, technologies for healthy scalp, um, introductions of neuroscience and skin seminars. So it's interesting how I, I see a few things happening. They're taking them in 30-minute segments. Normally, the, these presentations live are 45 minutes. So I think there's a learning there of what our attention span can be online. I think a lot of us are learning. I, I'm sitting in many webinars these days and loving the amount that's being shared on um, live broadcasts. So I think there's a learning that we're having to see what can be communicated. At the same time, when we open up, I, I'm certain that we just as communities and we need that contact, we need to see that face-to-face -face, um, of our colleagues and to uh, be able to come back together again. For right now, it's the short-term, I, I believe the short-term band-aid until we can have something in structure that's full-term. I think the, the approach is innovative. It pushes us to our limits of saying, okay, you have to make a decision somewhere as, a, as an industry. And we're an industry of innovation. We're an industry that comes up with ideas. So I would say this is kind of a short-term and possibly an integration of long-term plus something else, plus community again. But when that long-term happens, I cannot respond to that right now. Nicole? Yeah, I may rant a bit here, so you may have to rein me in, but I mean... <laughs> What I see is that exhibition holders or the big conference guys are attempting to recreate the exhibition online, which is just not a transferable model. You know, it's a, it's a bit like watching a travel show versus going to the destination itself. I mean, it's not even a poor imitation. It's a complete waste of time. So um, I really think that they should be looking at investments in creating, you know, virtual showrooms. You know, you don't need to wear a pair of VR, you know, goggles. You can, if you want, just hold up the smartphone to experience the booth in a more augmented way. You know, other industries have been augmenting real life labs, construction sites, and even with an architecture, allowing people to look and feel their way around a room for a couple of years now. You know, they could uh, supplement this with mini kits of product samples and fragrance to complete the sensorial element element which are sent to you know buyers homes or offices um, a company rep could take a group of buyers through a real-time presentation I mean if COVID-19 is going to be with us for as long as the experts are saying it will be then putting off exhibitions until 2021 is in fact just in you know delaying the inevitable which is another you know round of uh, delays till 2022 so in my opinion I think that it's an industry that needs disrupting and by its very nature the fact that it brings thousands ten thousands of people together from across the world um, into one small contained place just doesn't sound very sensible anymore. So in the way, in the same way that retail has been disrupted, I think that exhibitions and conferences really need to do the same. You know, even as an interim solution, if these same exhibition companies could create, you know, offline mini showcases held over longer periods that travel to, you know, the key cities where visitor numbers can be controlled, that would be some solution to the kind of endless webinars which um, are happening right now. And Joanne? I think that 
Absolutely around innovation. I think it's notable that um, in terms of um, beauty PR launches are very much doing um, what Nicola said, which is effectively getting product into people's hands um, and then having interactive sessions with the brands to explain the products, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there is definitely something that can be more effective. And, and let's be realistic here. There's also a sustainability aspect of this. Flying people around the world um, en masse to giant shows um, has a cost. And I think people are starting to realise that, you know, international travel, and I don't know the stat, but it is something silly, like, you know, 10% of people are responsible for 90% of um, flight um, emissions or something. Um, When we're looking at something like that, and we also know that um, COVID is directly, the the, the, the fatality and the seriousness of it is directly related to levels of particular pollution all the studies harvard etc you know so people know that actually traveling and transport is actually contributing towards a more dangerous environment so there may be also a permission basis around that in terms of csr etc so i do think that there are things that can be done but i would say and i and here i really do agree with sherry you know we're animals beauty is a sensorial business um, we also kind of want to scratch, sniff, and uh, touch the com- you know the, uh, the people that we work with in many ways. You know, it it is more than anything to do with just the product. It's relationships. Can I work with this person? How do they feel? So you know, I do think that you know, as, as with anything, even if we look at the two thousand and eight, I might call it crash, but crisis there. You know, there was a huge falling off of uh, business travel, et cetera, but it did rebound over the long run. Will it be exactly the same as before? Well, I think that the hygiene protocols and the numbers and, as I said, around sustainability are going to mean they're going to be less of them, better quality, and the ones that really have something unique and different to offer will be the ones that succeed. There's far too many multiple, very much Me Too um, shows in the beauty industry. And I also think that one thing that is interesting is, and I can see this working really, really well, when it is more of a technical show where there are papers to be presented, etc. that one I do see many more of them going um, online, as you say, shorter, you know, because these are things that people need to study um, and really need to understand as well. So I, I think, again, mixed picture, but I think some of the, the, the less good ones are going to fall out permanently. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about the digitalization of virtually everything, um, let's talk about online shopping. Can bricks and mortar survive this? We've already seen big businesses, or certainly John Lewis in the UK, for example, um, say that it's diversifying going forward, suggesting that it won't be reopening stores. Do we think, you know, we've seen Sephora also pull out of JCPenney or attempt to. Um, we've seen we've seen Ulta turn into a curbside collection. Will traffic recover or are closures inevitable? Nicole, what are your thoughts? Hmm, I feel like the contrary Mary tonight. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, I kind of look at stores and I think, why are you there? You know, um, if, especially if you've had a lockdown where most of the stores were closed and then ultimately they started to open back up and then you popped back in, you thought, oh, I didn't really miss you as much as I thought I would. And that's because if I did need to get something, I could get it online most of the time. Um, and given that right now we can't touch anything and everything has to move to a kind of a contactless environment anyway, 
beauty brands are obviously, you know, at the forefront of this issue. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, if your brand is not utilising all the tools at its disposal, then it's really not in a position to move into the future. And, uh, and and often, you know, when I'm thinking about this more deeply with, you know, clients, I say to them, what brands do you think will be in the high street or the main street in the or in the local mall in five years time? Um, and really, none of them, if they're that smart, um, I mean, sure, have a showroom, but consider stores just one channel in, a, in an omni-channel approach. You know, I really do understand kind of retail from, you know, the perspective of a consumer through to, you know, so-called consultant. But, you know, and I started my job as a fashion trend spotter, photographing street style looks in Tokyo, running around, photographing shop windows and putting them together. But, you know, the fact is, the younger consumer particularly is online. Influencers are pushing the looks online, the ability to purchase these same looks online that second. You know, I think it's crucial for brands to shift away from this idea of being a static presence in a shop door and just be everywhere anytime. And Joanne? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think this comes back to the hyper acceleration of trends that were happening anyway, as I said, you know, as we say, you know, what as Nicole said, I said, what was the point of being here? And when I think about the stores that have delighted me to go into, um, they are stores that have, you know, an experience to them, something that is not about product, that's about services, that has excitement, that changes over time. And it's interesting when you think of something like Selfridges, perhaps, which is a classic department store, but was always really good about putting kind of novel and constantly changing experiences within the store, the services, personalization, events, raves, you name it, um, because it, it created a space that was buzzy and interesting to be in. And, and it's very interesting that obviously next um, or going into the closing or at least five locations, you know, the the, the potential uh, next uh, beauty stores, the standalone stores, that they see a space for creating something. But I doubt it very much it will be like a Boots, for example. So I think absolutely services, experiences within stores. But actually, I think there's something that we haven't really touched on, that there was always a gap um, for online services, um, and whether that's even salons or whether it was in, in professional beauty, um, whether, whether it was facials or consultations particularly, consultations or inspiration, where people that weren't able to get into a store, be that because of geography, um, just where they live and they don't have that, um, th- that accessible to them, or perhaps disability. And many disability campaigners are talking about the fact that you said we couldn't make these things online or make them accessible to us, but you did overnight when it worked for you, um, able-bodied people. Um, and I think there's a lot of um, space for that to be complementary to retail, uh, to physical retail, because actually I might want to get a consultation with a facialist just to see how my skin is going and to get that personal recommendation. Um, with and, and you know we know many of the dermatologists, skincare doctors are doing that um, in 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 New York particularly, but also here in the UK. And that I can't see that um, withering away because it adds to the ability of brands to engage. But I don't think that good retail, experiential retail that offers something new and novel will ever go away because people genuinely like to go to the shops. But what that shop is and how that shop has to be, it's going to be radically different. And anything, as Nicole said, that is a static product sitting there on a shelf, that I cannot see why you wouldn't just buy it online as a repurchase. And Cherie? This is a very good question. And I was just thinking back 
in back in December, I sometimes spend my time in store to get closer to the consumer in, in a freelance situation. So I'll work for a brand here or there because I, I really like to see, are they really asking for natural products? Are they really so uh, picky or selective when they're choosing products? So there's a certain company or two that I work for. And what I was noticing is that what was happening is that there was a store visit first to look at the product for texture, for smell, and, and but not the purchase. And, and what was happening is they would go home and go online because most likely the deal was better online. So if we were purchasing from a certain store, if you spent a certain amount, you'd get an extra gift or something. So that whole retail environment has, has uh, even other needs that we may not even realize um, until we kind of speak them out. But one of the things also is I, I wanted to share that Sephora had just, I think it was yesterday, just announced their reopening plans. And part of their reopening plans are 48 safety procedures that um, their employees have to go through for training. And they are preparing. They, they've made a shift to prepare for what we're living in now. Um, they're all safety measures. So, of course, it's going to be increased cleaning, social distancing. They are pausing some of their services like makeup application, introducing wellness for employees, so temperature changing. And so I have to think that they have discovered that uh, opening up obviously is good for them to open up from a retail, retail perspective. And they're also in a good position to do both. They're online and they are in retail. And I think, again, our industry is so sensorial. The people do want to see the product. And, and this is going to be the tricky part is if they're not allowed to touch the product in store, no touch system is visually going to be enough. If I see a color, is it visually? So then what has to happen is the introduction of AR, AI to digitally try on those shades and such. So we're looking for ways and measures. The retail is looking for ways and measures to, to uh, stay alive. But I think some of the things that they're doing are, are some things that are expected. So the, so the safety, so looking at trends, safety and being, being comforted um, are part of their program for retail. And um, that's really what I, pretty much the area in the space that I think that I can share about today. And assuming that, um, you know, a lot of retail is going to have to stay online or, or stay digital, even where people are physically present in, in store. Let's talk about marketing because that is a tricky thing to navigate. I've certainly from a personal level realized actually I, I had assumed that I was mostly an online shopper but actually I've missed nothing more than Liberty Beauty Hall since since this whole thing um, started I, I realized that I can only purchase products online that I've previously trialed and that the new products aren't happening how, how are brands getting around that we touched on how influencers um, are managing to to still market to people and how PRs are managing to get physical products out to people. Who else is doing interesting things in the marketing sphere? Joanne, do you want to comment first? Well, yeah, no, I would. I, I think it's really, really interesting because I think what's fair to say is that the brands that are doing 
this type of marketing best are those who effectively remained themselves, but more so online. That they, what they've done is they've effectively um, extended um, their in, their original, their initial, their authentic brand story into more channels, more digital, and so they've become more so. And I'm thinking about I'm a, I'm a curly. I don't often wear my hair curly, but I, I am a curly. And Buclem, um the UK car brand, um, has it's kind of effectively gone from sending me um, information about its products, which has always been lovely and engaging, and actively creating a curl community. And not just about Q&As about hair care needs of textured hair and products, but in a much more uh, general way. So what they're doing is um, doing all the stuff around meditation and all of those other lovely things about what to do when you're in lockdown, but using curlies to do that who are effectively brand ambassadors who are providing the fun and the engagement, but then also how they manage their curly hair when they, they are in the kitchen or they are doing yoga. Because what that means is it, it creates, um, you know, a conversation, a community around that needs today. And that seems really, really natural for Buclem to do. And likewise, Bleach London, you know, they were having like online parties, you know, you die along with various types of um, influencers and celebs. To, yeah, but that's all about recreating their buzzy salon experience in places like Shoreditch and stuff, which has always been so vibrant and fun anyway. And I'm thinking about um, Selena Gomez's new cosmetic brand, Rare Beauty. Um, they hosted a Zoom call with um, its employees and, and some of its Instagram followers, not the massive ones, not the hyper ones, but actually um, the smaller influencers to create relationships between the brand and those followers. And I think it's, it, it makes sense for brands that have a strong founder voice or has a real purpose about what, what they're about. It's easier for them to undertake marketing in this time because they already know what they want to say. And it's something which, you know, they can deepen that engagement, deepen that story, bring it to life in more um, different ways. And obviously, we, we all know about Revlon's problems, a distressed asset. But one of the most interesting things about that and why something like that brand can't resonate is there's no story to it. There's no way. It, it, it's kind of divorced from any meaningful um, brand story or person. So how can you have a community built around that? How can you can you do that? And it's interesting to notice that Nick's have been doing really, really well on TikTok, etc., um, bringing you know, music festivals and all that. But that was already something they were doing beforehand. So it's like themselves, but more so. And, and I think it really is cutting the wheat from the chaff in this case. Because, and as we said, you know, really uncovering some of those hidden weaknesses. You know, it's easy to market in a warm, engaged, and human way if you are a warm, engaged, meaningful brand in the first place. If you are a static product sold in a cold, you know, without a brand story, without something to engage around, it's very hard to create that out of nothing. Interesting. Um, Nicole? Mm. I got sent a uh, EDM by one of the hotel consolidators this week, and it said, you are one stay away from your free night in a hotel. And I, th- I thought, my goodness, <laughs> you, I, I really don't need to be reminded of the fact that I can't go away, I can't travel and probably won't be able to for a few months. So this sort of sense of, you know, automated marketing is really not working right now. And some brands just need to keep quiet. You know, if you have nothing to say right now, just keep quiet, you know, uh, just let your actions tell your story or just just remain in the background. Um, No one's going to forget about you. Um, Whereas I think, 
you know, Eva Longoria's work that or work, work the bit she did where she dyed her hair for L'Oreal, uh, the hair dye in the box, and she did the whole thing. I put it on TikTok or no Instagram stories. Amazing. There she was with her grey roots showing. She, um, you know, put the lotion onto her hair, just demonstrated how it was done and then, you know, showed us perfectly what this product could do in a very authentic way. And we all, you know, we all kind of use that word authentic a lot. But in this case, it really was the um, correct term. And obviously, for most of us who've not been able to go to a hair salon for two, two and a half months, it really resonates and therefore it really works. So, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if you've got something to say and it's relevant to how we're feeling right now, say it. But if you don't, just, just you know, pipe down. No one cares. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly, it's lovely to think that a celebrity is also having to home dye their hair. I mean, certainly I, I'm, I might be the only one, but last week when uh, Carrie Simmons, who is the uh, fiancé of Boris Johnson, the, the UK Prime Minister, um, came out to clap for the NHS and was on television doing so with conspicuous absolutely no roots and perfectly coiffed hair it did make me think there's definitely a hairdresser at number 10 <laughs> um, even though Boris Johnson's uh, hair doesn't suggest that so there's clearly sort of two levels of lockdown I like the idea that Eva Longoria hasn't got a hairdresser and is actually on lockdown it's nice how about you I'm Cherie what about corona washing do you think companies need to exercise caution and make sure they're being authentic before they jump on this marketing bandwagon I think it's a, a sensitive line to walk because I don't know that, um, I think after a while, you kind of, you, I, even at a personal level, you get tired of talking about what we're in. You know, it's kind of, okay, let, we're in it. We're in this pandemic, but to have the conversation kind of always um, come back to that. First of all, I, I don't think it's mentally healthy, but second of all, you kind of get like, let's move on from this. So I think just going back to um, how do we manage with what we have and that whole community building and uh, is so important and consistency as well, because as mentioned, if, if you go and then you're not seen for a couple of days and then you try to do something else as a brand and then we don't see you for a week, there's no um, sense of what the brand is about and, and what they want to communicate. And um, what, and also building a regimen and helping consumers build a regimen helps them at home to build it into their day-to-day. Because day-to-day, if you're working from home and you're still under certain mandates, bringing structure into someone's personal life helps them to really get through the day. I think there's a lot of help there that we don't even realize that we're giving uh, many people that aren't used to having to be so structured in their own home. Um, so I, I certainly see this marketing as um, needing consistency um, in um, instruction to offer not only what we call authenticity, but also relationship building and a foundation. And I see a lot of this on Instagram Live. Um, it's kind of funny. As in, I, I wish someone or some of the brands would kind of take a step back and look at time that they are coming on because it seems in my time over here in the U.S. it always is 12 o'clock or one o'clock and then it, <laughs> I don't see anything throughout the days popping on. I keep getting the same notices at the same time. So staggering that out throughout the day, um, maybe later in the evening or very early in the morning could be some options. 
to that. I've, I, can, I can actually only echo that, Sheree, because even as we are um, recording now, I've just had uh, three or four, I've seen out the corner of my eye on my mobile phone, um, popping up live streams simultaneously. Um, many of us um, who are working, who are not on furlough, uh, who have childcare responsibilities, who may be doing their beauty um, moments or that time for themselves, that self-care very late, much later than normal if they're trying to um, homeschool children and work, etc. So I think you're so right on um, brands really understanding who their consumer is and what time they're available because personally, a lot of the people I know, they're not really able to be themselves in that relaxed state until much, much later in the day than they would have done previously. Um, so I really, really echo <laughs> what you just said on that. Precisely. And um, let's talk a little bit about media channels, because in in part of the wider discussion of, of this whole crisis accelerating what was already happening, um, very early on, we saw Condé Nast struggling, print media. Will it survive this? Um, Joanne, what do you think? Well, Genuinely, this isn't something I can talk to you in, in a great detail. I don't know enough about the print publishing industry. But I do think it's a case that this is about channel optimization and a flight to quality, regardless of, uh, of what that channel is. And I, and I think, you know, whether that whether we've already now extensively talked about with retail, you know, no matter what that is, is that, is that product um, worth the money you're asking to pay for it? And, and I think that, the, um, that whether it's um, uh, in the UK with the news media such as The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Times, you know, they've become, a, they, they are, from what I can understand, their subscription, um, newspaper subscriptions have gone up significantly because they are an access to information and they're considered um, a good source of um, analysis for the, for the crisis that we're in. So I don't think you can really say about any one channel losing um, losing ground permanently. I don't know enough about print publishing myself, but I do know that the media that I consume, that if I think it's worthwhile, I will pay for it. And I think that, you know, that goes across the board. I think one other thing around um, different channels is in terms of that social selling in China um, with live streaming, um, it's really proving a, um, a strong performer in, in actually um, creating channels for sale in a way that hasn't been seen in the US. And I know, or the UK, indeed, definitely Europe. So it, there may be new channels emerging as well as other ones on the decline. So over to you, Nicole. I mean, if content was king before, now it's, you know, the emperor, because now more than ever, we're all online, we're all reading, we're consuming content like never before. Either it's to understand what's going on with the entire situation, or it's to understand what's happening in our own industries a bit a bit further, to even try and make plans. And, you know, so the quality, uh, and as Joanne said, is, you know, quality publications are, you know, like cream, they're rising to the top. Um, people almost for the, you know, for the first time in a very long time are appreciating the skill and understanding that goes into, you know, extensively researched um, content or reports or journalism, as it used to be called back in the day. And, you know, a lot of that rubbish, uh, the free stuff is now fortunately falling to the wayside. Um, that said, I mean, there's been some significant publications in the region. Uh, Buzz Media has, you know, kind of taken out offices across APAC. There's, you know, lots of local style publications which have disappeared, um, lots of fashion publications which are going um, across the region. So 
there's a huge shakeout in the industry. And then I guess you've got, you know, this sort of uh, dichotomy of uh, KOLs who help promote products or bring products and uh, services to light and you know, bring that to the consumer. And on the other side, you've got, you know, the publications where people go to for more authoritative uh, background. Um, before there was something in the middle, but I think that stuff in the middle has now just been completely shaken out. And Cherie? This is an interesting uh, question. And um, again, I just uh, responding that I don't have a print media background. Um, I have been digital for such a long time that. Um, as, as I was pondering upon this question, one of the things that I do know is that I, I, I generally do receive um, print materials that are specific mostly to industry. So how this would, the, the media would survive on print, um, just thinking some of the things that I personally receive uh, hasn't really stopped. But um, I, I don't know how exactly to respond to this, just to say, I think that for my category and what I do and how I research has been so digital that, um, I, and the content needing to be from authority for me is really important and um, that it has backing to it, that it has substantial, I'm, I'm gonna say quality for the, for the most part. Um, is what I look for when I'm working with information because the other part of it too is I share a lot between my colleagues. So when we speak about print, by the time I get print, I'd have to take a picture and then send it off to them. So I think I come from a different angle on this to respond in a way that it's from a consumer mindset because I don't really use the publications in the same way. I use publications more to create trends and visuals and those types of things. I see. And finally, let's talk about product trends. Um, we've seen Glossier launch hand cream that was a sellout success. We've seen home hair dye trending. Um, will any of these product trends last the distance? I was reading earlier about L'Oreal thinking that uh, makeup and lipstick particularly will take quite a while to recover, um, but skincare um, is still trending um, in Asia. Will health and well-being remain the priority? Um, what do you think mass will hold on to its gains due to drops in income? Um, Nicole, do you want to start us off? It's a really interesting question because usually during recessionary times, which obviously we're, most countries are about to go into, uh, we had the lipstick index and companies like Amore Pacific particularly did well over the last few years with slower growth economies um, with lipsticks. We always know that it was the go-to product. You couldn't afford um, you know, a new handbag or a dress. You went and bought a lipstick instead. Well, as people cover their faces with masks, um, who's going to wear lipstick? I mean, you're not going to wear them. So already, um, I believe there's a drugstore chain in Japan has seen, you know, 20% dip in sales compared to the same period last year, particularly with um, lipstick. In fact, I think from what I, from what I read, uh, the decline in lip makeup items was particularly significant in April with more than a 60% fall in sales. But interestingly enough, sales of lip balms have remained solid because obviously uh, for those of you who are wearing masks quite a lot when you're going out and about, um, you know, you do get a lot of dryness on your face um, and in your throat. So, um, you know, a product like that can solve that issue. So 
hand creams obviously um, have become uh, quite popular and, and as we track products here in Asia for our clients we're starting to see a huge shift towards more so-called natural hand sanitizers with more um, beauty benefits uh, put in there so initially obviously when there was a shortage there was a lot of functional you know this does the job of what it's supposed to and now there's a huge shift towards the emotional side um, it has you know collagen in there it has you know um, hyaluronic acid to help uh, put moisture back in your hands as well as repair. So I think, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a lot of pragmatic launches happening. And then obviously, you know, with the fact that if your half your face is showing, then that could potentially leave um, the other half to really highlight. And Cherie? So this is a, a great question. And what I'm seeing and learning is as we continue there there's going to be um, an approach to beauty in, in different ways. We're almost creating a new category of sorts. And what I've heard it termed is uh, a mask effect. And what that is, is that as a, so I'm going to target and make the demographic women. So she'll have an outside look for makeup because she has the mask on. And then she'll have a work from home look where she'll have the mask off. So work from home would be more of her purchases in even using skincare more. So face masks, definitely, I was just looking at numbers the other day, were up tremendously. So at home care for skin for sure will uh, continue to grow. Um, and going back to so when someone is going outside, when they're covered up in the mask, then are they wearing lipstick? Probably not. But honestly, for someone like myself, I've been doing it. I've been, I just put on my face, I put on my mask and I go out. I don't really get involved in whether it's getting on the inside of the mask or not. But one of the, one of the interesting things is if that's the case, then having long wear technology being incorporated. So I think that we'll be seeing more of this mask effect, mask on, mask off, right? And how we'll be creating products around that. And then going into um, well-being and wellness, for sure, for sure, for sure. This I, I keep seeing even more. And um, I think that we haven't even approached where we'll be with wellness type brands as we start to come out or move through this time in our lives, um, because of work from home, we'll be incorporating more stress-reducing environments for the home, whether it's a scent, whether it's a fragrance, whether it's a fragrance incorporated within a hand cream or a face cream. I don't see that going away. I see that even becoming more of a, a bigger category. I think this will be a time for product developers to really look at wellness to see how they can come in and introduce products into, into the home, um, even candles, scents, essences, those types of things outside of beauty that help the consumer get through their day, the worker get through their day. I don't, you know, as we're trying to get back into the workplace, not everyone is bringing everybody back into the corporate environment. They're doing staggered shifts. They're setting up, even in the corporate world, they're setting up wellness stations. Those wellness stations can be anything from five-minute meditations, but they're purposefully 
being integrated into the workplace. So as far as well-being and wellness, I just, we have so much opportunity there. It's, it's really a place, I would say, in a category to look for, for growth, for big growth coming down the pike. And Joanne? Oh, just echoing what everyone's um, had to say there, particularly in terms of what we're seeing out of Korea. I, I think I saw some interesting um, data from South Korean beauty uh, retailer um, of Young. Um, problems for problem skin caused by mask wearing, such as um, pimple patches, anti-acne, have rose 42% um, year on year in March because of that higher humidity and the chafing of the mask causing soreness, blemishes, etc. So, um, you know, you can really see something that's actually really focusing in on skincare, whether it's actually to um, do soothing makeup, if that's the case, or setting sprays, anti-humidity sprays, or indeed touch-up products that have perhaps more stick applicators, etc., um, so that you're not touching your face as much if you are going to do makeup on the go. Um, I think it's really, really interesting when we're talking about things like hand cream and sanitizers and all of the stuff. And I think it's, you know, all of this has happened, but it, it's, it's almost like the next stage is to elevate that kind of offer. And I saw a really lovely um, sanitizer uh, product called Touchland. And, it, and it, it's, it's moisturizing um, spray mist, so it evaporates. You don't get that alcohol gel feel, the clagginess. It's naturally scented. It's vegan. And it kind of looks a bit like an iPhone. And it's pocket flat, so, you you know, in the same profile, so you can slip it into your pocket. And I do think, um, echoing what Cherie said about fragrance brands, I think even further, I think that, you know, perfume brands, they, you know, these are alcohol-heavy products. Um, you know, they could go multifunctional, not only in terms of mood boosting. And I know Ferminich have just launched a, a, a new, I think it's a sandalwood-based scent that's supposed to calm, et cetera, as well as be obviously beautifully fragranced. But actually, perhaps they're actually going to move into sanitizing the body and even clothes and home services. So we already know Lalago um, does laundry care. Could it go further? Could it, it, could it play in that space more? Quite possibly. I think there's another aspect that around the digitalization that I think that SPF, but also, but not just SPF, but also blue light protection and pollution protection, um, as we're all sitting here staring at our screens constantly, is really going to come to the fore. And I think uh, Supergoop, I think it is, is really heavily promoting products against blue um, blue light of social um, social media. And I think other areas where, you know, when we know that people are perhaps um, more reticent about going into store, um, these, these new personalized devices, whether that's, um, you know, Lositan's Duo Lab or L'Oreal's Perso, where you can really, you know, have the, the personalized experience in your home it are really going to come um, forward. And I, and, and I know we talked about uh, what more Pacific we're doing, but one of the things that they've done, despite the challenging environments, is actually um, invest in a, a 3D printed um, mask, a personalized mask um, business whose name immediately um, escaped me. But, you know, obviously that kind of product um, that both removes people from perhaps going out in the shop, but also um, suits them individually is going to be um, something to look at. Some great food for thought there. Thank you. I'd like to thank everyone for taking part today. Thank you very much, Joanne, Nicole and Cherie. And thank you to our audience for listening. Until next time. 